And I am Aware Now. Aware Now, the official platform for causes. Tune in and turn it up as we raise awareness one story at a time for the causes that tie us all together. Beyond beautiful, she's bold and brilliant as well. As a child refugee coming to America, Christina Alexandra made her way as more than just a pretty face while creating a space for others to rise and to thrive. In her career, she's held her own in corporate America while holding others up in New York City during 9-11. Despite the circumstances of any battle, she shows up not just pretty, but powerful. Born in Kyiv, Ukraine, which was part of the USSR at that time, you emigrated to the United States at the age of 13 years old under religious asylum as a refugee with your family. Let's begin, Christina, when you landed. What was life like for you growing up in America as a child refugee? So I really had two childhoods. Um, one childhood was back in Ukraine, Soviet Union and Ukraine, which was actually a very beautiful and, and hard for people to imagine, but an idyllic childhood actually uh, back home because I was, you know, I was very sheltered in a good way. I was very popular. I was number one in my class. I was number one in my after school activities. And I'm a natural extrovert and people lover. So I love people. I love to connect with people. I love to add value to people. And as a kid, that was very evident. So when I arrived in the States, when we got off the plane in New York with, and we literally just had our, our luggage, my parents and I and my sister and my grandparents, I naturally thought that, you know, well, I thought America was a place where streets were paved with gold. And I thought it's a place for opportunity, lack of oppression. And I just thought the people here were so nice and so friendly and everybody just wanted to help each other and work together, which is actually an ethos of, of communism and socialism. So I was quite shocked when I got here to learn one, how materialistic the society is. Now, I was only 13, right? So my window of the world was very small as a child. But very quickly, I started to realize that what I wore mattered. You know, my my sweater mattered. My The way my hair looked mattered. What I had in my hair mattered. My sneakers, my backpacks, even my notebooks. And the stickers I had on my notebooks mattered. And it mattered to such a point that kids would really decide to be friends or not friends with you based on what you had. And unfortunately, when we left, we left with nothing. So I went to my parents and asked for the things that I, I wanted. And, and, and they, with very sad, hurt faces, said, we don't have it. We can't give it to you. So it was a very tough childhood from that perspective. You know, I went to school. I didn't speak any English. This is my fourth language. Um, so I literally went to school every day and, and kids were so mean. I was, um, I was also affected by Chernobyl. I physically didn't grow. I grew seven inches. I'm sorry, seven centimeters in one year. And I, um, I was short, I was a little chubby, I had glasses, I had braces, and my hair was cut very, very short because of Chernobyl, it didn't grow. And kids would just tease me mercilessly. Everything from throwing gum in my hair to trying to kick me down the stairs, to calling me names, I didn't even know what the names were, kicking my desk. Um, so for two years, I didn't have a single friend. I would cry on the way to school, I would cry during bathroom breaks, and I would cry on the way home. And I think I wrote in my diary that I just, I, 
I didn't grow up with God, but I was asking to just not wake up the next day because I didn't want to go to school. So it was a very tough upbringing and it didn't really change until I went to work on Wall Street, um, which is a different part of the story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you are beautiful. You're smart and you're an Eastern European woman. Christina, what are some of the common incorrect assumptions that have been made about you over these years? I'm glad you asked that question. Um, This is a stigma that unfortunately doesn't get spoken about in our society, um, and it should. So when you are Ukrainian, Russian, Eastern European, and you're female and you're pretty, um, you automatically get what I call a discount. Um, So when you are in the room, especially, you know, my background's finance, but in law and real estate and any, you know, real serious profession, the assumption is that you're someone's daughter, you're someone's wife, and if you're not, then you must be doing something nefarious. So for lack of a better term, you're a gold digger, you're a scam artist, um, you're sleeping with someone to get what you want. So that those are some of the assumptions that get made. And unfortunately, I've had to deal with those since I was 16 years old. And even last year, while advising a very high profile client, there was a you know public article smearing me to smear my my client who was my candidate um and that was an extraordinarily hurtful thing to do and there was nothing i could do and i hired a publicist a very well-known publicist um to defend me in this in this libelous and scandalous story and even my publicist i said who would do this i'm i'm nobody i'm no one of interest he said come on christina you're pretty you're blonde you're eastern european you're single and you're advising a very powerful man and you work with powerful men. What do you think it looks like? And it just cut me to core. It cut me to my core alley because in this day and age, in 2022, with everything that we women have, have gone through, immigrant and not, black, white, Hispanic, Latinx, Asian, you would think that we would have a bit more power, especially in this age of Me Too, But no, there isn't. I mean, this is literally what he said. And it hurt me so much. And he even said, you know, well, maybe you should get married. That would make your life easier. Wow. So to to this day, you know, even when I'm meeting with, because of my background, I do work with CEOs, chairman, high net worth individuals and family offices. Oftentimes there's this, uh, like, why are you here type of thing? Um, And it's, it's something that really, really hurts. And part of my mission is to help, and I'm involved in a few different organizations, is to help women and underprivileged, underserved communities and teenagers. One, I'm I'm aiming to do a TED Talk um, and also work with a few organizations because this is something that unfortunately just doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and being pretty, as as I think I mentioned, it gets you in the room easier but it's harder for you to stay in that room. And it's so much harder for you to do business and be taken seriously because people think that a lot of people, unfortunately think that they can take advantage of that. Wow. Wow. What an, man going uphill always, it's gotta be exhausting. It is. Um, you know, all that said, despite adversity, you've done so much. 
I would love for you just to share a few of your achievements that you've made, because it's pretty amazing. While climbing the corporate ladder in America, please also share some of the obstacles you mentioned um, a couple just now, but that you've had to overcome on your way up that ladder. Absolutely. Um, so I always feel a little reticent to say accomplishments because I feel like I'm just starting to copy uh, Gary Vaynerchuk, who's actually a fellow ex-Soviet. I met Gary in 20. 2008, actually, when he was running Wine Library. But I feel like I'm just starting. Um, I will mention that there are a couple of things that I've been able to accomplish that I'm quite proud of. One is I was able to get a job on Wall Street when I was 16 years old. Um, it started because I got into a program that was started by a gentleman whose name is Sandy Wild, Sanford Sandy Wild. And uh, he is known as the man who basically built Citigroup as we know it. And a protege of his, Jamie Dimon, is currently the CEO of JP Morgan. So I had the luck of meeting uh, Sandy when he started this program in my high school, for which was a public high school in New York, for talented high school sophomores that if they got in the program, they would learn about stocks and bonds and things, and they would get an internship their junior to senior year of high school. I was able to get in that program and then which is a longer story, I was able to convert a two-month internship into a full-time job because I graduated high school in three years with honors and wanted to have an additional year of working. So I was able to convince people on the trading desk at Prudential Securities um, to give me a job working full-time. And then I was able to, when I applied to undergrad schools, I got accepted into a few Ivy Leagues, I got accepted into the NYUs, but we didn't have any money. So I thought, what if I go to the school called Baruch at night and I continue working full time? So I'll have four years of experience by the time I graduate. And my vision was I wanted to be an investment banker and then I wanted to be the CEO of a major bank. Mm -hmm. So um, I was there for three years. And another accomplishment of mine that I'm quite proud of is I started in a very junior capacity at a large insurance firm called Zurich. And I ended up helping build and create the corporate strategy department from scratch of what is now about a $60 billion company. So, of course, I, I was very fortunate and lucky in that I worked with amazing people that gave me so much leeway and room to run. But I really just created that position myself. And let's see, a couple other accomplishments. I, um, I started my entrepreneurial journey in 28. I started a small boutique holding company, which is a bit like a venture capital firm. So we had four portfolio businesses uh, based in Europe and the US. One of them was an online food ordering business, which paved the way for things like Seamless, DoorDash, Grubhub, uh, again, unrelated, but we had one of the first. And my then we owned a luxury men's fashion brand. And as a self-described nerd, I didn't know anything about fashion, but I thrust myself into that environment and ended up going to amazing events and gas, such as the Met Gala, mm -hmm. such as the Vanity Fairs and all of these amazing charities where I actually ended up meeting great, great, great people that I ended up working with and helping their companies grow and scale. So those are just some of my accomplishments. And, you know, to be honest, the greatest one I think right now is helping my country. Wow. That is awesome. And and the fact that you say, you know, well, I'm really just getting started, but you know, these are, are, are a few things. Um, I'm excited to uh, to follow you in your story to see the what's next and the what's next after that, because um, it's a lot. <laughs> um, 
you know, so, so while working in New York, um, let's go to a particular date. On Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, as the Twin Towers fell, you rose. You rose up like many women and men to come to the aid of others. Please replay that day and share how you responded to the attack. Absolutely. So I was in the office at 7.45 that morning on the trading desk and um, we were working about two blocks away from the World Trade Center uh, when the first plane hit. And to be very honest, we didn't think much of it. I was on a trading desk. Traders aren't known for their soft skills. So they actually made some crass jokes about it, about somebody being drunk and slamming his plane into the towers. By the time the second plane hit, it was a very different story. The mood on the trading floor, which is, you know, very flat floor with a bunch of little desks, um, changed completely. People were disoriented. People were confused. Um, we started hearing that the leadership of our company left. So it was literally sort of just rats running from the ship. Pardon, <laughs> pardon the, mm -hmm. the thing. And I was about, I think I was 18 or, or something at the time. So I really had no idea what to do. So me and one other girl that worked on the floor really just kind of wandered out of the buildings. And all you saw was this dark plume of smoke, two dark plumes of smoke. And downstairs there was mayhem. I mean, people were trying to get in the subways. People were trying to get into the yellow cabs. Nothing was going anywhere. Everybody was going in different directions. As I was living in Brooklyn um, and my coworker was living in the seaport a few blocks away, we decided we were going to walk up towards the buildings. And then I guess, again, we didn't know what we were gonna do. And I will never forget walking up and we were literally in front of the World Trade Center and looking up and seeing a rain of paper. I mean, paper just kept falling like this. And then you just saw things that were falling really fast and escalating. And I thought, who's throwing rocks, right? Because you can't, you can't comprehend what's happening. And those were actually people jumping. So it's unfathomable and your brain kind of doesn't, doesn't put two and two together, but there's literally flail, flailing arms and legs. And that's when it really hit home. And I get goosebumps as I'm talking to you about this now. And all I did in that moment is I remembered stories that my grandfathers have told me about World War II because they're both veterans and, and heroes of World War II and the heroism um, that they've displayed. And I remember thinking, we're getting bombed. That's just what I thought, we're getting bombed. And there's more bombers on the way. And by the way, rumors spread like crazy. If you asked anybody, the police, anyone, no one knew what was going on. People were making up all sorts of things. Someone said they bombed the Pentagon, they bombed the White House, Sears Tower was next. I mean, that's literally what we heard. So I remember thinking, we're probably gonna die. And I remember thinking that in a very calm, oddly calm way. Mm -hmm. And I said to my coworker, I said, we have to do what we could do to help. And there is a hospital, St. Vincent's Hospital, I believe St. Vincent's Hospital by Pace University in the area. So I said, let's go there and let's see what we could do to help and help bring people out of the buildings. So I actually created a group. Uh, uh, it, it was about 15 people. And then we grew to, to have six different groups of 15 people that were the rescuers. So our job was to go to the hospital, get, now everybody wears masks. At the time, masks were not common, but you couldn't breathe. If you breathed in, it was like breathing in a thousand little needles. Um, you had to go like this, and it was a particularly warm day, so it wasn't like people were wearing sweaters. Yeah. So 
we brought masks and then we started actually going into the buildings to bring people out because as people were coming down the stairs, some of them were, you know, unable to, some were elderly, there was a pregnant woman, somebody was bleeding from their arms. So not everybody could just get out. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I just remember us coordinating rescue missions and I, I never felt so on purpose in my life. Maybe just now with the Ukraine war, I just felt that I was at the right place at the right time doing what I needed to do. And I'll still remember we ran out of masks and I said, let's go back and get more. We walked maybe two blocks, literally, you know, I think it was, uh, let's see, south. And I heard this loud boom and then the earth shook and I just ran. We just ran like crazy. I mean, it was like one of those things where someone lifts up a car when their baby's under it. You don't know what you're doing. You're doing it. So I, um, that's when the first tower fell and we ran for our lives. And I remember running into my friend's building and seeing it on the news and she just screamed. So, and again, it's just, it was a oddly that I couldn't believe what was happening. So I was just calm. And then I said to her, we need to help more people. So I actually grew after we kind of came to, and you couldn't see anything, right? Because the plume of smoke, nobody knew what was anywhere. There was dust everywhere, but it was this microscopic needle dust, as I like to call it. So all I did was I said, okay, we got to help. So we started to do the same thing with the second tower. And again, literally within minutes of us, maybe seconds of us leaving the second tower, the same thing happened where we ran for our lives. And we ended up being there till about 6 p.m. Then we walked across the Brooklyn Bridge where my parents picked me up. And then in the weeks following that, um, of course, I lost my job. But in the weeks following that, I actually helped with search and rescue efforts in the World Trade Center. Wow. And what floors me about this, and this, first of all, thank you so much for sharing this. Um, but the fact that you ran for your life to get away from danger, and then you ran back to face it, to help others, is, um, is really awesome. Thank so, you. um, oh, reasons I shouldn't be wearing mascara start right now. <laughs> Honestly, to this day, I, I almost don't, I don't like telling the story because I feel like anyone would have done what I did. And I don't think I deserve a thank you. I feel like this is my duty mm. and this is what I'm, that this is what you're supposed to do. This is what we humans are made for. Yes. We're made to make money and accomplish and do those things, but we're made to be there for each other and help each other. And that's really at the core of what we should do. And that's why we are here. We're not just here to buy a bunch of pretty things and pay our bills and die. Right. Exactly. And so, yeah, I can't, I can't thank you enough. And well, and so that question goes very well into the next, um, you know, let's go back to where you began to Keith. Yes. You were born there. You have friends and family still there. While yes. you aren't physically there now, you are there in spirit and with support. What are you doing right now? I mean, people are asking this question, what do I do? What do I, I'd love to know what it is that you feel called to do and are doing right now. And then second to that is what can other people do? What should we be doing right now? Sure. So yes, I am from Kiev. Um, I still have friends there. I have some family, including a cousin of mine who's a diplomat and ambassador um, that have been able to leave. By the way, leaving is not easy. And just because you leave doesn't mean you're okay. I think the numbers are 2.7 million refugees now. And where are all those people gonna go? So leaving Ukraine 
just for everyone's, you know, information isn't the answer. What now? Right. Um, but yes, I still have some family that is in Kiev. I actually have a sister who's in Kiev now. Um, she runs a major Japanese corporation. She's not leaving one because men aren't allowed to leave. So our husband isn't Two because, you know, other people, grandparents and things, they can't leave. And then the passageways aren't safe. They're getting bombed all the time. Um, what am I doing? Uh, gosh, so much. <laughs> when I heard this was happening, I felt kind of like 9-11, that it was my duty to really stop what I'm doing and do anything I can to help. So I've arranged everything from literally put packages together of clothes, of baby food, of, um, I mean, anything and everything you can think of to, I've reached out because I work with, you know, corporations and companies. I've reached out to world leaders, some in Canada, um, ex-military personnel about donating bulletproof vests and goggles and other protective equipment, not, not weapons, not arms, <laughs> but protective equipment. Right. Um, I've organized with one medical supply company to deliver infant incubators because babies are literally being born and dying on the ground because they, exactly. <laughs> um, I have organized uh, aid in every single form. I mean, just today I was on the phone three times with a friend of mine who brought his family out of Kiev and he himself can be in London or Switzerland, but he's going back and forth and delivering aid. And to answer your question, there are many, many organizations that you could donate to. Um, I don't wanna recommend one on in this interview because it's a very individual decision. I personally like to put my effort and money where I know it's going to go to the immediate benefit of the people. Mm -hmm. So my friend, whose name is Georgi Yasinski, is literally spending his own money, bringing what needs to be from one end of the border to the other. There are, and I've literally coordinated donations from, from my friends that have asked me what they can do. Um, so I would say definitely that. Then there's an organization called MEST, M-E-E-S-T. It's not an organization, it's a shipping company. So they will send packages for free to Ukraine mm -hmm. um, or to the border. But I would say really see which of the causes drives you. I mean, I've also coordinated potentially adoption of children. Again, mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm a conduit here. Uh, <laughs> right. But there have been 78 children that were orphaned from Kharkiv that were on a bus to Kiev that had nowhere to go. So I literally just got on, I'm on Telegram groups, I'm on Signal groups. I've gotten very active on Twitter. And actually on Twitter, I saw there were a number of African exchange students. A lot of people don't know there's a lot of African exchange students from Liberia, Nigeria, in Ukraine that were getting discriminated against and couldn't leave. So I actually worked with a reporter and leveraged the power of my social network and other network in um, Germany and France to get them out and help coordinate a plane from, from Lagos to come pick them up and get them safely across the border. Because when I say my people, that's not just Ukrainian. We're all people. Mm -hmm. So there should never be any kind of discrimination. Unfortunately, there there was and there is, and it's rampant. So I've coordinated anything and everything I can. And my latest and hopefully one of my most impactful efforts is the tech community for Ukraine. And so that's a coalition that I'm working on building together. There's a Miami-based startup. As soon as the startup came out with a, a statement um, that got picked up by the news, that said they would hire any Ukrainian entrepreneur, uh, not entrepreneurs, developers and tech talent. I reached out to them and it turns out they don't even know where Ukraine is on a map. So <laughs> I said, you know what? I love the fact they're Cuban and their names are Ma um, 
Michael and Matthew Vegas Sands. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've actually tweeted about this. I've already matched them up with a team of developers that I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, a friend of mine, Andrew, who, by the way, when I need to send money to Ukraine, he sends it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're currently in the process of interviewing for jobs. I've now expanded that effort to two additional startups. And now through those startups and through Lula, they're introducing me to their investors, which are big VCs like Kosla Ventures, 305 Ventures, Founders Fund, which is run by Peter Thiel, um, Venture Miami, which is Mayor Suarez's arm. So this is very early stages, but then again, the war is very early stages. So I'm looking at putting together a coalition of people that would hire, because that's another, that, that's a secondary or third problem, right? Once people are out or they're safe, how are they going to feed their, their families? How are they going to feed themselves, right? right? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're not thinking about that yet, but that's a real issue. So right now there's about 200 developers that I'm working with. I have another group that are waiting. So I am literally just before we spoke, I, I just scheduled a call with SoftBank. Um, I'm sure you've heard of mm-hmm. about seeing what we can do. And again, very early days, but this is my mission at the moment. Wow. Wow. How incredible. Um, you know, for all of those people who are out there right now, who like a lot are right now, um, braving a storm that they did not sign up for and are feeling particularly powerless, what advice do you have for those people who are seeking to find that bravery, that power that's so needed within themselves? What advice do you have? So this is a feeling that I've actually dealt with many times in my life and ever since two weeks ago, daily. Um, So I want people who are reading or watching this to know, number one, you're not alone. Number two, no problem is too small. You don't need to have relatives in a war-torn country dying in order to feel powerless. You can be bullied very badly. You can have a bad relationship. You can get fired from a job. You can have a fight with your friend. I mean, there's no such thing as a feeling not being um, justified. So anything can first acknowledge it, right? Because oftentimes we don't want to admit it. First, acknowledge what it is you're feeling. Second, really feel it. Because oftentimes when it's unpleasant, we just want to run away. You know, we want to have a drink. We want to distract ourselves. But to really feel what am I feeling and why am I feeling and what's triggering that feeling? And then for me, in this case, it was like, what's triggering? It's powerlessness. There are people dying and I can't help. I'm sitting here and my biggest complaint is is what? Nothing compared to this. But then I thought, okay, what can I do to help? So I think action is really the antidote to powerlessness. Mm. You're going to feel fear. You're going to feel a threat of rejection or something, whatever it is that's triggering you. But what can you do about it? What can you do? Even if it's a small step, even if it's a little step. So in my case, what can I do? I can call friends. I can get active on Twitter. I can retweet things. I mean, Mm -hmm. Twitter is the reason why Elon Musk activated, you know, internet in a country, right? So right now the power of the word and the power of going viral can spread so quickly. So think about what you can do. What can you do? You know, if you're, can you go for a run? Can you go for a walk? You know, can you phone a friend? What can you actually do to change the situation. Mm-hmm. And I think that taking those action steps is really what will help you to go from powerless to powerful. It also mm-hmm. keep in mind that we are all extraordinarily powerful beings. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Mm-hmm. 
we have a lot more power than we realize, but we give away our power by telling ourselves we don't, that it's somebody out there that does, it's the government that does, it's our boss that does, it's our significant other that does, we do. And how we react to a situation and how we look at a situation and the meaning, I'm gonna paraphrase Viktor Frankl and, and Tony Robbins, who I, I follow very, very well. It's the meaning that we give an event or a situation. While we're not going to maybe celebrate, but what can we learn from this? How can this enrich us? And I've asked myself this when I've gone through hard times, what can I do and how, what can I learn? Mm -hmm. So I think that reflecting, finding an empowering meeting, or even just being open to the fact that there could be an empowering meeting mm -hmm. and focusing on what we can do. And then I think last but not least, it's giving yourself credit. And I've struggled with this myself. I feel like if I don't end the war today that I haven't succeeded, right? <laughs> or maybe if you're running a company, if you don't make a million dollars today, you haven't succeeded, mm -hmm. you know? Or maybe if you make nothing today, you haven't succeeded, but you're breathing, you know, you have a chance and you're here for a reason. That's mm -hmm. why we're all here. Yeah. Oh, well, I just, I can't thank you enough for sharing these personal stories and um, all these beautiful insights. And I, I have to say that how you said it so beautifully that action, perhaps action is the antidote, right? Um, this feeling of powerlessness and just thank you so much, Christina. Thank you for taking this time to thank help you. just all of us become a bit more aware now. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Allie. Thank you. Tune into our podcast, subscribe to our magazine, find us and join us online. Visit IamAwareNow.com. We will no longer wait for permission to change the world. Together, we are aware now.